Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 133 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today is part one of a remarkable two-part story, which I was unfamiliar with until fairly recently. We will talk about life in the forces, bullying and intimidation, brutal violence, unsolved crimes, and at the end of it, we are arguably left with as many questions as answers. But before we begin, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially the new members of this exclusive club who joined us this week. That's Isabella Roy, Tara Van Rosenberg, Bella Trix, Myra Wall, and Stephen Suggett, the host of the Evil Minds podcast. Thank you all so much for your support, and I hope you'll enjoy the 29 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content, including the recent video I posted from my home office where I record this show. Thank you again for your support, it is so much appreciated. Let's set some context for this story and take a look at the music we were, or weren't, listening to in December 1997. Oh my goodness, we have a new low this week, I think. In the UK charts, Barbie Girl from Aqua was at three. Various artists butchering Lou Reed's Perfect Day, for charity of course, at number two. And top of the pile was those Teletubbies, with Teletubbies say A-O. I can't even bring myself to ask which one was your favourite. Top of the US chart was Elton John with the double A side Candle in the Wind 1997, Something About the Way You Look Tonight. And in the Australian album charts, the best-selling album was Savage Garden with Savage Garden. I never quite get those self-named titles, do you? It's like those fathers who choose to give their son their name. Very odd, isn't it? but we can't let the Australian album chart from 1997 go without a shout-out to the number three best-selling album, Middle of Nowhere, from Hanson. And they are still amazingly selling out venues today, over 20 years later. Oh, really? I just checked. So what was going on in the news this month? Carlos the Jackal, the professional revolutionary, went on trial in Paris. A federal judge sentenced Autumn Jackson who claimed to be Bill Cosby's daughter, to 26 months in the slammer for trying to extort $40 million from him. And with the current Spice Girls reunion tour having just kicked off in Dublin as I record this, December 1997 was the month when the Spice World movie premiered in the UK. Have you seen it? The Royal Yacht Britannia was decommissioned after 44 years in service. The Rover Group produced the final Rover 100 after 17 years, and in true crime news, Ulster Loyalist leader Billy Wright was shot dead in the Mays prison, leading to some more terrible events in Northern Ireland, some of which I have covered in previous podcasts and will be returning to shortly. Today's podcast comes from Portsmouth on the south coast of England, around 73 miles south of London. Uniquely, 
Portsmouth is the only island city in the UK, and it's the only city whose population density exceeds that of London. Probably the most significant person born in the city is the host of the 358th most popular true crime podcast in the UK, and that's me. Closely followed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the famed engineer of the Industrial Revolution. Oh yes, and acting and comedy genius Peter Sellers too. But did either of them have a catchphrase such as stay classy? I think not. Portsmouth's history can be traced back to Roman times, and it's probably best known as a significant naval port for centuries. And it is the navy, at the core of so much in Portsmouth, which dominates our story today and next week. In 2013, Timothy McCall, a Royal Navy leading seaman born in 1984, was serving aboard the Type 23 frigate HMS Westminster as part of the ship's seven-month security mission in the Middle East. The ship docked in Dubai, and on the 31st of May, Timothy spent the day at Atlantis and played rugby in Sharjah later in the evening. He then visited the Ducati Cafe at Dubai Mall to meet sporting hero Nicky Hayden, before heading to the Rock Bottom Cafe at 11.50pm, which was around 15 minutes or so in a taxi from where HMS Westminster was docked. Life was good for Timothy. His work was going well. His wife Rachel was pregnant with their third child to join Sky and Cameron. He'd bought gifts for his children whilst on shore leave that day, and he was due to Skype his wife the next day and looking forward to getting home and seeing his family. He met up with colleagues for drinks at the Rock Bottom Cafe, and the mood was good in the bar, and the drinks flowed freely. But by the early hours, Timothy's group felt he'd had enough to drink. It's been suggested he got into a minor scrap at the bar, so they put him in a taxi to go back to the ship. Port Rashid, where the ship was docked, is a huge place, and the driver got lost trying to find HMS Westminster and stopped at a tea shack to ask for directions. Timothy got out of the taxi here and was never seen again. Just what happened next is uncertain, but his body has never been found. The ship set sail back to Portsmouth four days later, and it was a terribly poignant scene as the crew were instructed to leave a space on the deck where Timothy should have stood when they lined up as the ship came into Portsmouth cheered on by family and friends. Meanwhile, back in Dubai, an investigation was underway led by the Dubai Police Force with assistance from counter-terrorism command officers from the UK. Before the ship left to return to the UK, members of HMS Westminster walked the route that the taxi should have taken between the Rock Bottom Cafe and the location of the ship's berth, and they also spoke to local people in the area. The port area was searched by divers, dogs and helicopters with heat-seeking equipment, but nothing was found. The police in Dubai interviewed the taxi driver who had taken Timothy back to the port and checks were made at police stations, hospitals, mortuaries, medical centres and prisons with there being no record, no sign of him. But the official investigation concluded that Timothy must have fallen in the water and drowned. And I guess that for most of us, that seems the most likely outcome. But his family were hugely critical of the investigation believing it was unlikely he fell into the water. They felt that the Navy wasn't open and transparent, 
and that the explanation of Timothy accidentally falling into the water was the easiest explanation all around. After all, if foul play was involved, it could have caused difficulties politically. The family went out to Dubai themselves to try to raise awareness that with the high unbroken fences and walkways to get in and off the boats, Timothy would not have been able to fall into the water. Their frustration was increased as both the Navy and police searched the docks for any sign of him using divers and minesweepers. The body of water in the docks has no current or tides, so nothing can get swept out to sea, it all comes back inland. But there was no body or any sign of him, no clothing, no loose shoes, and the explanation that the body would have probably been dragged out to sea after being caught in a ship's propeller seemed very unlikely. Timothy's wife Rachel believed that her husband may have returned to his ship, but left in a second taxi, which was seen coming back into the port at about 3am. She said she had seen CCTV evidence of the second taxi, in which a man in a white t-shirt and aviator-style sunglasses arrived with two passengers in the back. He then left the port with the man in the white t-shirt still in the car, but only one passenger in the back, and she believes that man was her husband. She said the sighting of the second taxi has also been confirmed by workers at Port Rashid, and she called on the Royal Navy to re-interview sailors from HMS Westminster and make sure the lead was followed up and to work more closely with the forces in Dubai, and she urged more witnesses to come forward, saying, I can understand how scary it must be for someone to come forward, but this is my husband and my kid's dad, and they deserve to know where their dad is, and I deserve to know where my husband is, she said. The family was still anything but convinced he'd fallen into the water and believed he may have been murdered. What lends this credibility is that the CCTV footage of Timothy leaving the Rock Bottom Cafe was the key to the investigation. But now it appears that the man caught on this camera was not Timothy. His wife Rachel and policeman uncle Neil Cunningham have disputed the CCTV footage saying, it's not my husband. I know what he looks like, how he stands. The CCTV might not be clear, but I know what he was wearing, his mannerisms. I'm the one person in the world who can identify who he is, said Rachel. But despite the concerns of the family, two years later, in May 2014, Timothy was declared dead while his death certificate listed his death as being due to drowning. But the reason I've started with this unsolved case today is that mysterious deaths in the Navy were certainly not unknown. Timothy's wasn't the first, and 15 years before Timothy was declared dead, another mysterious death was being investigated. It was October 1999 when the Lynx helicopter approached HMS Edinburgh in the Mediterranean Sea. A team of detectives were on board as they investigated the disappearance of a missing sailor in December 1997. 18-year-old Nicholas Wright, who had just spent his first week at sea in the Navy when he disappeared from Portsmouth. Nicholas was a popular, sporty young man who played cricket and bowls for local teams and he'd always dreamt of a career in the Navy and he'd loved his first taste of being at sea and was certain that this was the career that he wanted to pursue. He was so excited He had planned to meet his granddad at Portsmouth Naval Base Unicorn Gate on Saturday, December the 13th to tell him all about the experience, but he didn't turn up. 
which was totally out of character. His granddad reported his disappearance to police, who looked into his last known movements. They discovered that after his week at sea, he got out for beers with his colleagues and had ended up at the popular and legendary South Sea nightclub Joanna's. But that was the last sighting of him, and he had not reported back for work at the Navy. Now, Nicholas was a conscientious young man, passionate about his new career. So why would he just disappear? Had he disappeared of his own volition? It seems unlikely, as he was so full of his new life. Had there been an accident, like potentially Timothy McColl, all those years later? That was possible, I guess, especially after a night drinking. Or had he met someone at Joanna's and gone back with them, and come to some sort of harm, or maybe been attacked on his way home? But detectives didn't know. There was no trace of Nicholas. And despite a number of appeals about his disappearance, it appeared that he just disappeared without trace. And so time moved on. And now, two years later, detectives from Portsmouth sat in the wardroom of HMS Edinburgh to interview approximately 15 sailors who had been aboard on the week prior to Nicholas's disappearance. Detectives were uncertain just how the sailors would react to the questioning two years on and what information they were likely to have about a young man they hadn't known very well. But detectives were astonished that one name kept coming up again and again in relation to Nicholas's disappearance. A colleague of theirs, and a veteran sailor, who went by the name of Alan Grimson. What they heard was enough to bring 40-year-old Grimson in for questioning, and at 6am on Wednesday, December the 15th, 1999, police arrived at his Portsmouth flat, 143A London Road, North End. As Grimson was driven away in a police car, his landlord gave some information that potentially implicated Grimson further by saying that in December 1997, Grimson had been acting oddly. Just after Nicholas had disappeared, Grimson had completely redecorated the flat, including the carpets. Was this to remove incriminating signs of a murder, maybe? But if so, just why would Grimson have wanted to hurt 18-year-old Nicholas Wright? In custody, Grimson refused to say anything except that he had not known Nicholas. But detectives knew that this was a lie. But as we've heard so often on this podcast, a night of reflection in the cells changed his approach. And the next morning, Alan Grimson wanted to talk. He wanted to talk openly and freely. In the interview suite of Alton Police Station, the two experienced detectives, Terry Fitzjohn and Neil Cunningham, sat back as Grimson began to unburden himself of the dark secret that he'd been keeping for two long years. Alan Grimson was a petty officer who had served on every great British ship in the late 20th century Navy, the Hermes, the Invincible, the Ark Royal and the Illustrious. But in his later career, he became a firefighting instructor at HMS Excellence on Hornsey Island, Port Solent, where every sailor is taught how to tackle blazes. Grimson told detectives that this is where he first met Nicholas Wright when he took the course back in November 1997. Grimson had given Nicholas his phone number to see if he wanted to lift back home to Leicester and at the time, Nicholas had been concerned about it enough to consult his family 
and asked them if Grimson could be coming on to him. Their family warned him to take care, just be wary of Grimson. And later that month, Nicholas told a Navy friend, Peter Green, about Grimson's proposition. And on the back of this, there had been words exchanged when Peter Green had called Grimson a puff in Joanna's nightclub in Portsmouth. There had been a scuffle between the two, resulting in a Navy police investigation about Grimson's conduct, to which Nicholas Wright gave a statement. But on December 12, 1997, Peter Green said he saw Nicholas in Joanna's nightclub talking to Grimson, which he thought strange, but the teenager had seemed happy in good spirits. Grimson told detectives how he invited Nicholas back to his flat for a nightcap, but what Nicholas didn't know was that Grimson was a predatory, sadistic man. He made a pass at Nicholas, and when this was refused, there was a violent struggle and Grimson started beating him with a baseball bat. He just lost it. Poor Nicholas was terrified and cried out in pain, begging Grimson not to rape him. Grimson said that he knew he was going to kill him when Nicholas finally pleaded, why don't you kill me then? Grimson then reached for a carving knife and proceeded to slice off part of Nicholas's right ear, then cut his throat and threw his body to the floor, explaining to detectives, that he took a part of his ear as he wanted a trophy to remember those feelings of exactly what had happened. And after performing a sex act on the dead body, Grimson punched the air and let out a roar of triumph, claiming later that it was such a feeling, I've never ever had that feeling before. It was a feeling of power, control. I would say it was better than sex. He then took Nicholas's lifeless body to the bathroom, dumped him in the bath, and nonchalantly took a shower and went to sleep. The following day, Grimson wrapped Nicholas's body in plastic bin liners, drove to a secluded spot near the village of Cheriton, and hid it in a hedgerow. When asked how he felt about what had happened, Grimson told detectives how he'd been utterly elated by what he had called the Nicholas Wright experience. There was no remorse at all for what he had done, and even as he spoke about this murder, the growing excitement was evident in his voice. After the interview was over, Grimson led the detectives to the shallow grave where he had left Nicholas, just over two years to the day since Grimson had dumped his body there. So just who was Alan Grimson? He was born in October 1959, the third of five children in Beckles, Suffolk. There is not too much known about his childhood. At six foot one, Grimson was insecure about how he looked, thinking that he was ugly. And awful as it is to say, not without good reason. He wasn't a man most people would have described as being easy on the eye, which led his Navy colleagues giving him the rather unflattering nickname of Frank, short for Frankenstein. And this nickname stuck. When the news came out that he had murdered Nicholas, those who had worked with him were astonished. One was quoted as saying, he was a big lad and the young, more impressionable sailors tended to be a bit frightened of him. I always found him okay, the sort of guy you would want to serve alongside, but he was always a bit of a loner. You never saw him with women, although no one ever considered him effeminate. Grimson certainly appeared to be one of the lads and he loved rugby and football and drank at the Royal Standard, Portsmouth's favourite naval pub. 
He was known to a lot of people in the city. He'd been around for a long time and there had been no hint of any wrongdoing at all. And even though some people found him aloof, no one suspected he was dangerous. Another Navy colleague from HMS Invincible said, Looking back, you can say there were things about Alan that were a bit strange. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but you would never have believed that Alan was capable of murder. There was no dispute he was good at his job. And looking at the comments made about him, though there's a sense something wasn't quite right, many people say glowing things about him, what a good guy he was, what a good friend. There was just no hint at all of just how dangerous he could be. I found him a cold, cruel and calculated individual, said one senior sailor, serving on HMS Edinburgh. He had a stare which could look right through you. He would glare at people from his stocky frame with his short cropped hair. Scary. He was always hard on the new lads. You could call him a bully, intimidating. I didn't like him, and there are a lot of the lads who still feel that way. So let's return to the interview room. Wayne Grimson had just confessed to murdering Nicholas Wright. As the police interviews drew to an end, Detective Terry Fitzjohn leaned across the table one final time and asked Grimson the one question he always asked at this stage of an interview. Is there anything else you think we ought to know? This question rarely provokes a response and the detective wasn't expecting this to be any different. But Alan Grimson peered back at the police officers, paused, took a deep breath, and then said chillingly, yes, there's one more. The detectives drew a sharp intake of breath and looked at each other. As Grimson had revealed all the details of what had happened to Nicholas Wright in his vinyl hours, Grimson continued to outline the last hours of a man he knew only as Sean. Particularly worryingly, This man was also killed in December 1998, a year after Nicholas. And detectives started to worry that they were dealing with a monster who may have killed a man every December for a number of years on the anniversary of the death of Grimson's father. This could mean there could be upward of 15 victims. Grimson elaborated about his motives, telling detectives that he wanted to dominate and control the young, good-looking sailors he found himself surrounded by singling out individuals as potential targets for his attentions. He sought to punish the young sailors as a kind of twisted revenge for his own physical ugliness. But it was the hideousness lurking within him that was the real problem. He would later brag, There were some lucky people around who stayed with me. They were lucky because they avoided being killed. And next week on this podcast we will talk more about the horrendous life and crimes of Alan Grimson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspects of UK True Crime, please join our Facebook group. You'll be made very, very welcome. And to support the show and help me to keep bringing you this free content weekly, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime, where for £3 a month, the price of a dodgy pint of lager, you can access 29 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that's all from me for today. So until we speak again next week, 
have a good one, take it easy, and from me, Peter, and Isambard, stay classy. Cheerio for now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.